We are in Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, verses 23 through 31. And I'm going to start off with a story that you're going to think I made up, but I promise you it is 100% true with no embellishment. So when I was in my late 20s, Carrie and I uh, moved to the town of Stockdale, Texas. I became the pastor of First Baptist Church there. We had our daughter then, Kaylee, was two or three years old. and um, Great town, great little church, have great memories of that time. Uh, if you are ever in Stockdale, number one, you're probably lost because it's not really on the way to anything. Number two, uh, if you, if you want to stop and get some good breakfast tacos in the morning or some great enchiladas later in the day, there's a place called Sylvia's right on Highway 87 uh, that is fantastic. It's as good, good a Tex-Mex as you'll find anywhere in this little bitty town. Uh, we went there quite often when we lived there. It was one of only three restaurants in town. Uh, but one time I went there and then realized when it was time to pay that I had forgotten my wallet at home. That's a bad feeling. Fortunately, this is a tiny town. We live less than half a mile away. And Sylvia knew us. So she said, just bring back the money today. Don't worry about it. Just go home, bring back the money when you can. And I said, I'll be back today. But I got distracted. I was the only full-time staff member at that church. It was a lot of work to do. We had a little girl at the time. That's a lot of work. And so I got distracted and forgot. Now that next Sunday... I happen to be preaching on the Eighth Commandment, which is, thou shalt not steal. Some of you are ahead of me. So in the sermon, I'm up there in front of my people, and I'm talking about how uh, the commandment not to steal doesn't just include, doesn't just forbid petty theft and armed robbery and shoplifting and embezzlement, but other more socially acceptable ways that we get things we didn't pay for. And so as I'm listing off all these examples of ways we break the Eighth Commandment without knowing it, that is the very moment that God chose through His Holy Spirit to remind me that I'd forgotten to pay back Sylvia. God has a sense of humor. And so since I'm a preacher and I don't believe in wasting a good illustration, even if it makes you look bad, I told that story. And I said, y'all, I promise you, as soon as church is over, I'm going to go to Sylvia's and, and settle accounts and, and pay her back. And so, sermon ends, invitation, then I shake everybody's hand, lock up the church building, we get in our car, we drive to Sylvia's. I walk through the door, and I am greeted by applause. As I turn to the right, I notice that there's about 30 familiar faces as everybody from my church has gone to Sylvia's to wait and see if I'm going to do what I said. <laughs> and we laughed and laughed. Now, I tell you that story because as far as I know, it's the only time I ever got applauded for doing the right thing. If you need the applause of people to do God's will, you're probably never going to do it. And what I want to say to you is that the, the opinions of others matter to you more than you probably think. Because most of you would say, I don't need applause. I am not an attention-seeking person. I'm more private. I keep to myself. I believe you. And yet... I want to give you five examples to prove to you that the opinions of others matter. Number one, even if you are every bit as private as you think you are, I guarantee you there are people in your life whose opinion matters to you very, very much. It may be your parents. It may be a spouse. It may be friends or a friend group. It may be colleagues or a boss. 
But there's somebody in your life who, when they are angry with you, when you disappoint them, you can't sleep until you make things right. Some of us, if we're honest, for some of us, it's, it's a full-blown addiction. It's, a, it's an idolatry. And I admit I used to be in this camp. God is weaning me of that idolatry. But for people like us, it's like we have to have everybody happy with us all the time. And if some random person out there who you barely know doesn't like you, you feel this compulsion to try to win them over. Well, there's a second example. The opinion of others often guides our financial decisions in ways we would rather not admit before we buy that outfit, before we buy that car, before we move into that new house, we're thinking about, does this suit the image that I want to project to the world? Number three, it guides some of our parenting decisions, those of us who've been blessed with kids. Can we just admit, moms and dads, that in our worst moments, sometimes we discipline our kids not out of love, not out of a desire for them to grow, but out of embarrassment, I can't believe you threw that wall-eyed fit on the floor of the Hobby Lobby and made me look bad in front of all those people. I can't believe this is the day we were going to go see your grandparents. We were going to have this dinner party and everybody was going to come over. And that's the day you chose to get a nose ring and a mohawk. I mean, I can't believe. And we, we, we think about it when we're deciding how to educate our kids. Well, the way our friends who are parents educate their kids has something to do with our decision. And are we going to fit in with them when we're, when we're talking about uh, other, other parenting decisions, uh, the activities we steer them towards, for instance? I know that as a dad, if you have a son that doesn't play sports, that's a concern. You go, oh, are the other dads looking at me like I'm less manly because my son is into violin or, or video games or, or hiking instead of baseball? These, these things factor in for us. They matter to us more than they probably should. Number four, have you ever thought about why we hate being embarrassed publicly so much? I mean, obviously, it's no fun being embarrassed. But why is it that that's like top three uh, fears for us? It's, it's like, I, I fear spiders, I fear clowns, and I fear being publicly embarrassed. It, it's something like that. And this is why so many people fear public speaking. What if I say something wrong and everyone laughs at me? This is why if someone ever insults you in front of a bunch of people, you hold it against them. You, you, you hold that in your heart and you want revenge. And here's a fifth example. Think about how carefully we craft our public image. And the funny thing is, the people I know who are most adamant that they don't care what anybody thinks of them, they're the ones who think about it the most. And I'm going to pick on my own people because I don't want to be accused of bigotry against some other group. But I grew up in Texas. I grew up in a small town, actually out in the country with cattle. Um, I've lived in Texas my whole life, Montgomery County, where I live now and for the last seven years. I mean, we, we've got a lot of people in this county, but we still live a very rural culture, rural lifestyle. And so all my life, I've known people who are absolutely determined to be cowboys. This is some of the best people I know, but they're kind of funny sometimes too, how they got to have their boots. And I'm wearing my boots. I'm not a hater, but they, gotta, they wear nothing but boots. They got to wear their hat. They've got to wear their jeans and it's got to be the right brand of jeans. And they've got to fit in a certain way. You got to paint those suckers on, man. You got to be poured into them. And they got to listen to country music. 
When I was a teenager, Michael Jackson was big, right? And none of us guys would really admit we liked Michael Jackson, but when, when that music came on, you could see the cowboys in the group and their little beads of sweat would pop out because they were trying so hard not to tap their feet, you know, not to bop, nod their heads because that would be bad for their image, right? And then there's the pickup trucks, okay? And nothing wrong with a pickup truck. I've driven one on a couple of occasions, different times I've owned pickups, but it just makes me laugh when I see these guys who drive these trucks that you know that thing gets five miles to the gallon. He's got he's to straddle two parking spaces because it's too big to fit in one. And I don't want to get into a fight because, I mean, look at me. But uh, it does make me want to go up and say, hey, cowboy, when's the last time you hauled some calves off to the auction ring? Uh, no? I mean, don't you know that a Honda Civic will get you to the Cracker Barrel just as fast as that monstrosity you're driving? And again, nothing wrong. These are great people. I love them all. And, and all of us fit into a certain category. Whatever group you're in, I guarantee if you showed up wearing the wrong uniform sometime, people would look at you funny, like, what, what are you doing? Why aren't you dressed like us? Why aren't you listening to our music? We care about these things so much more than we should. See, humanity has always been like this. In fact, in the time when this book, the book of Hebrews, was being written, the Romans actually had a term for it. It was the Latin term, the cursus honorum, which means the race for honors. Your whole goal in life was, I want to find honor in the eyes of my fellow man. The, the fear was that I would be put to shame. And yet, today we're going to talk about how that gets in the way of us following the Lord. See, the worry that we have about how we look in the eyes of others can destroy our peace. It can steal our joy. It can steer us towards sins like greed, envy, vengeance, hatred, super, superficiality, even gossip because there's no better way to boost your status in the eyes of others than to tear somebody else down, especially if you can do it in a witty way. Most of all, it makes us hesitant to commit ourselves fully to Jesus because, I mean, you know him. What if he makes me do some things that make me look soft in the eyes of others or makes me give away a bunch of my stuff so that I can't live that lifestyle that I want to perpetuate? But think about what a tragedy it would be to get to the end of your days and realize I wasted my whole life trying to impress a bunch of people who, if I'm honest, barely gave me a thought. And I missed this amazing opportunity to live out this wonderful plan that God had for me before the foundation of the earth because I was too concerned with my honor in the eyes of others. Hebrews 11, this next part tells us there are times when following Jesus means forsaking honor and embracing shame. That's what it takes sometimes to, to do the will of God. So with that as an introduction, let's pick up with verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. 
By faith, the people crossed the sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So, so far in Hebrews 11, we've seen what it means to live a life of faith is to live a life where you're reaching forward for the things that lie ahead. Your whole goal is the things that you can't see, the things you can't put your hands on. You're not holding on to the things of this world like your reputation, like your image, like your honor. But what lasts forever means more. And so far, he's walked us through the book of Genesis and the heroes of that book and how they chose to live for the future, live for the things that last forever. And now he gets to Exodus as we look at the greatest of all Jewish heroes, Moses. And I want to talk today about two things. Number one, what it looks like what it looked like for, for Moses to choose shame over honor, and then what it will look like for us in our day and age. So let's take that first one. What did choosing shame over the honor look like for Moses? We know the story of Moses. If you grew up in church, or if you've ever read the Bible, it's a very memorable story. Moses is born in a tremendously difficult time for the Israelites. One of many times in history. I mean, if you want to know whether God is real, just Ask yourself, how come this one group of people always earns the ire of tin-pot dictators everywhere? Well, they're the people of God. And this is one of many times that some dictator, some despot, wanted to kill all the Jews. And in this case, his plan was, I'll just, I'll just kill all the babies. So whenever a Hebrew baby was born male, he said, throw him in the river, toss him in the Nile. But Moses was born and his parents, two devout Levites, said, let's hide this one. It's obvious God has a plan for this little boy. I think he'll support us. I think he'll protect him. And then there came that fateful day when he, they had to place him in the river. They had to trust in God. They, they took a waterproofed basket and just set him af adrift, saying, Lord, if, if we're right about this, we believe you'll protect him. And he did. By God's providence, he was found and adopted by the princess of Egypt, the, the daughter of Pharaoh. So he grows up against all the odds in unbelievable privilege and luxury. But not only that, he grows up in the seat of power, watching the most powerful man on earth, his adopted grandfather, rule the most uh, dynamic and, and massive empire on earth at that time. And then when he's 40, he makes a big decision. He says, I'm not an Egyptian, I'm a Hebrew. So I'm going to turn away from the people who raised me and turn to my own people and identify with them again. And as part of that, he kills an Egyptian taskmaster who he sees uh, beating one of the Hebrew slaves and thinking, obviously, that his people will rise up and they'll break free and, and establish their own nation and he'll be king. And it doesn't happen. And so in fear, he runs away. Now you might say, well, what is that? How does that faith? I mean, he was a fugitive murderer. Notice in Hebrews 11, it doesn't praise him for the act of violence. It praises him for identifying with his own people. Because we know how the world works. We can acknowledge that if you are the prince of the country and you kill some random person, you're going to get away with it. I mean, maybe not Prince William or Prince Harry. Well, maybe William could. But I'm talking thousands of years ago when monarchs ruled with absolute impunity. 
All Moses had to do was go back to his grandfather and say, Grandpa, I don't know what came over me. He would have been forgiven. He ran because he had identified himself with his people. His grandfather wanted him dead because he had turned away from his own family. That was the act of faith. He said, I could go back. I could restore my position. I could, I could live in luxury again. I could be a ruler. But instead, I'm going to follow my people and my people's God. That was the act of faith. Now, it goes on to talk about two other stories that happen after Moses' natural life. Moses dies. He's replaced by Joshua. That second generation crosses the Jordan River and they're finally in the promised land. But the first obstacle they face in conquering this land is the biggest and the baddest obstacle of all, and that's Jericho. Jericho was a walled city. It was the greatest city of that country. Now, if I've never been in combat. Some of you have. I'm guessing that if that was me, I would, my attitude would be, I'm scared, I'm nervous, let's do it. Let's just get it over with. But what does God say instead? He says, go to Jericho, march around the city every day for six days. That had to be difficult. Because you know, first of all, it only increased your own anxiety. But even more importantly, the, the men on the walls, no telling what they shouted down at those Israelites who were marching around them, doing a parade essentially, calling them cowards and worse. Now, I've seen veggie tales. I don't think they threw slushies at them, but they insulted them. They railed upon them. And I'm sure those Israelite men were saying, let's just charge. Let's, we, can't, we can't let our honor be besmirched in this way. Let's defend our honor by charging. And if they would have, they all would have died. Because there's no way they would have breached those walls. Can you imagine six days of this? And on the seventh day, they're thinking, okay, finally, we're going to attack. And, Jer- and Joshua says, no, today we're going to march around it seven times. Oh, good grief. But they did it. They swallowed their pride. They did what God said. And the walls came tumbling down. And then there's the story of Rahab. Rahab, as she's called in this passage, Rahab the prostitute, which is not what you want on your business card. Rahab, like every other woman in her position, in every culture in human history, was at the very bottom of the social ladder. And yet on the day that two Hebrew spies came to her brothel looking for a hiding place because they knew that everybody was on the lookout for them. She had an opportunity to change her circumstances completely. She could have gone from the, the most hated woman in the city to a hero. All she had to do was go down the street and say, hey, soldiers, here they are. Come get them. Instead, she chose to become possibly the only thing lower than what she already was. She became a traitor to her people by hiding these spies. Why? Because she knew. Because she believed. She'd heard the stories of what God did in Egypt. She said to herself, I've been worshiping these gods in Canaan for all my whole life, and they've never done a thing for me. They're just idols. They're just statues. They don't speak. They don't walk. They don't act. But this God's real. She hid the spies. And when the walls fell, she and her family were rescued. And you know what's exciting? When you read the New Testament three different times, Rahab is mentioned as a hero of the faith. She's mentioned in the same sentence with Abraham. Think about what that says. 
about what it means to live a life of faith and what God does with people who trust Him, who take, who embrace the shame when it's necessary to do the will of God. So that's what it looked like in biblical times. Now, what does it look like for us? What does choosing shame over honor look like in our world? Well, you could probably give as many examples as as I could. I will say that if you're a Christian student on a secular campus today, sometimes just identifying yourself as a Christian is all it takes. You know that as soon as people find out you're a Christian, there are certain fellow students who will look down on you, maybe even professors who will think you're ignorant, maybe a bigot. That takes courage. Maybe uh, some of you work, in fact, I'm sure some of you work in certain workplaces where you know that you'll never be one of the guys because what they do after work together, you can't be a part of. Or, Or the jokes they make on the job, you can't participate in. Maybe it's even worse than that. Maybe you have to stand up to certain people you work with because they're harassing, because they're abusing others, because they're doing illegal or unethical things. Maybe in the future, this is a radical thought, but go with me. You might get an opportunity for some higher paying position somewhere else and you and, and your family pray about it and you think, you know, I think God has us here in this town, in this church, in this workplace for a reason. So I'm going to turn that down and I'm going to stay where I am, even though everybody's going to think you're nuts. For all of us, we all have a next step of obedience. Whether you're 98 or eight, there's a next step of obedience to the Lord. And sometimes your next step of obedience is blocked by this wall that is the opinions of others. Like the wall of Jericho standing before you and you think, well, I can't do that. I can't start tithing 10% of my income to the church because if I do that, people are going to hear and think I'm a religious fanatic. I can't, I can't volunteer for ministry because all my buddies and I, we go out and do this thing uh, three or four times a week, and that'll mean I won't have time to hang out with them, and they'll make fun of me uh, for being at church or being involved in ministry instead of doing what we've always done. I can't start sharing my faith. I can't start talking about Jesus, and no matter how humbly I do it, some people are going to think I'm just a little obnoxious. What is your next step of obedience? And how does the wall of public opinion stop you from taking it? Again, you can think of other examples that I can't. I think the real question is not what choosing shame over honor looks like. It's when. It's not what, it's when. When do I choose shame over honor? Because let's be honest. It's not like every time you choose shame, you're doing the right thing. It's not like public shame is always a sign of virtue. In fact, it often is not. Often, when you earn the scorn of other people, that's the sign that you've made the wrong decision. If someone older and wiser than you comes and says, you're headed down the wrong path, you need to listen to them. If your family's upset with you, you need to apologize. And sometimes even non-Christians can correct you. Non-Christians can come and say, you know, you've been a jerk. And you're not being persecuted in that moment. You need to recognize there's a time to apologize. So how do we know the difference? How do we know when the the route that leads to shame and scorn is actually the route that is right? I want to give you two scriptures, two verses of the Bible that every Christian ought to have memorized that help us make this decision, okay? So number one is Romans 12, 18. 
Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And there are no exceptions there. God expects us to live at peace with everyone. God expects us to have healthy, harmonious relationships. Spiritual maturity, part of what that looks like is a person who has healthy relationships with their fellow Christians, with their family members, and even with people who believe the exact opposite of what you believe. So there's no virtue in being someone who offends everybody all the time. There's no virtue in being someone who stirs the pot and makes people angry and hurts people's feelings. That's not spiritual maturity. That's not boldness. However, the first four words of that verse are, if it is possible. You should do everything within your power to be on good terms with everybody you know, but sometimes it's not possible. When is it not possible? Well, that's the next verse. Acts 5.29 says, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Now, the context here is that Peter and John have been called before the Sanhedrin. You remember those guys, right? They were the the leaders, the, the spiritual leaders of Israel. They were the ones who, just a few weeks before this, had successfully manipulated Rome into crucifying Jesus. And now they're standing, they've got Peter and John standing in front of them. They say, you men need to stop preaching the name of Jesus. You need to stop saying that he's risen from the dead. You need to stop saying that he's Messiah. You need to stop saying that salvation comes in his name. Stop it now. And Peter says, sorry, I can't do that. And notice there's no disrespect in what Peter says. Peter's not insulting these men, even though they may deserve insult as far as we're concerned. He essentially says, listen, I understand God has placed you in spiritual authority over me, and so I respect you for your position. But right now, I can't obey you because what you're telling me to do contradicts what God's telling me to do, and I have to choose God instead of you. If, if me doing the will of God means you and I aren't going to be on good terms, then that's the cost of obedience. I will choose shame in your eyes over disobedience to my God. Sometimes we have to make that decision. Sometimes, even in relationships with fellow Christians, we have to choose obedience over acceptance. We have to choose the path of virtue over the path of applause. And that's hard. Now, there's one more issue this brings up, a question you might have, and that's, when it says uh, in this passage that Moses chose the reproach of Christ over the treasures of Egypt. Why does it say the reproach of Christ? Moses lived thousands of years before Jesus, didn't he? Yeah. But what the author of Hebrews is saying is, Jesus is the ultimate example of someone who chose shame in the eyes of this world in order to do the will of God. Think about what Jesus did. Jesus is the only person who ever lived who actually got to choose the circumstances of his own birth. Man, if, I, if I'd had that opportunity, I guarantee you I would have put myself in the body of someone six foot four with, with you know, a, a deadly jump shot or something like that. I mean, Jesus, Jesus chose to be born in poverty to parents who weren't even married. He chose to work with his hands in a society that valued the mind. He chose once his ministry began, to be a homeless, wandering preacher in a society that valued status and titles 
and education and qualifications. And then he chose to die in the most humiliating, most painful way possible, most degrading way that humans had ever conceived of. Think about it. Jesus didn't have to die that way in order to redeem us. He could have redeemed us by any death, any death you can name. Jesus chose that method. Why? I think he wanted us to understand, I am taking all of your shame upon myself. I'm taking all of your guilt, all of your shame, all of your rejectedness, all of your sense of alienation. I'm taking all of that onto myself so that you can be accepted. So that you can be forgiven. So that you can have the honor that only I rightfully deserve. The honor in the eyes of heaven that can never be taken away from you. So that just leaves me with one question. When's the last time you chose the reproach of Christ over the things of this world? When's the last time that obedience to the Lord actually cost you something in terms of relationship? If you can't think of any examples in your own life of when you've done that recently, I think it's important to ask the Lord, Lord, what is my next step of obedience? Am I not taking it because of what others will think? Help me to follow you. Whatever that next step is, let's take it today. Let's make that next step and get right with God and choose His path. Choose the reward of obedience over the treasures of this world.